From the heart of the Midwest in Bloomington, Indiana, welcome to One More Cold Call, an Indiana University Maurer School of Law alumni podcast. Each week, over a casual cup of coffee, Dean Parrish meets with accomplished alumni from around the world and from all walks of life. Over a season of episodes, we hear from law school alumni who have unique stories to tell about the unfolding of their professional lives and the lessons they've learned along the way. We start each podcast off with a little bit of Indiana University Maurer School of Law trivia and history. Did you know that the Jerome Hall Law Library is one of the finest law libraries in the nation? In the early 2000s, when it was ranking libraries, the National Jurist consistently ranked our library as the best law library in the nation, with the provocative story, Why Indiana Outranks Harvard. In 2010, the last year of the publication, the library was ranked number three, just behind Yale. In 2020, it was listed as one of the seven of the world's most beautiful libraries with its virtual online tour. The Law Library collection currently contains more than 750,000 volumes and is considered one of the largest and finest collections in the country. Well, now you know. Today, I get to welcome Robert Anthony Prather to the podcast. Tony, tremendous to have you on the show. Thank you. It's a, it's a tremendous opportunity to be with you today. Well, great to see you. Look, Tony is a senior partner at Barnes & Thornburg, where he's been for over 20 years. He represents management in all aspects of labor and employment law and litigation. Prior to joining Barnes & Thornburg, he was in-house counsel for Ameritech Corporation, Firestone Building Products Company, Firestone Industrial Products Company, and Firestone Polymers. He twice has served on the Indiana Supreme Court's Disciplinary Commission. With the law school, Tony has been deeply engaged. He has served as a member of the school's Black Law School Student Association Advisory Board since 2005, twice as a member of the school's alumni board, and as a member of the Maurer School of Law Board of Visitors. He received the Indiana Lawyer Leadership and Law Distinguished Barristers Award in 2018, the Indiana University Maurer School of Law Distinguished Service Award in 2015, and in 2020, he was the recipient of the Bicentennial Medal. Last year, he was inducted into the law school's Academy of Law Alumni Fellows, the highest honor the law school can bestow upon an alum. Tony, it's great to see you this morning, and thank you for joining One More Call Call. Thank you. Tony, you're a partner at Barnes & Thornburg in Indianapolis, as I just said. Uh, can you give our listeners a little sense of your practice? What do you do? Who are your clients? Uh, what's the day in your life look like? Sure. So I represent employers only in employment-related matters, whether they are whether they are um, just a uh, 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 complaints of discrimination, complaints of harassment in the workplace. Uh, and then, so, so I, I have sort of, what I would call that sort of my reactive portion of my practice where the, my client has been, uh, whether it's they've been sued or that a charge of discrimination has been filed. So I come in in response to that and represent my client, whether it's before the uh, state or federal agency or whether it's in state or federal court. And then I also have what I call, which is my proactive portion of my practice, in which I am advising clients with respect to employment-related matters. And uh, the perfect example of that has been really, uh, we're almost two years into that process, and that is advising clients as it relates to COVID-19 and the implications of COVID-19 in the workplace. And so literally, you know, just short of two, uh, two years ago, we were advising clients with respect to what to do now that, that, that COVID is here, uh, advising clients with respect to uh, how do you keep the doors open 
when your employees are now working remotely, uh, then we moved into a little bit about how do we return people back to the workplace? Uh, how do we incorporate the vaccine process within the workplace? And so really, we are, again, as I said, going on almost two years of, of proactive and sometimes reactive, quite frankly, advising clients on COVID-19 and its daily impact upon the workforce. That's got to be keeping you busy. It does. And, and one of the things that has been uh, really challenging about it, literally almost always these issues are really time sensitive. You don't really have a place where you can go and find a definitive answer. Uh, and so uh, a lot of the time you are really talking with your clients just about what are some common sense ways to protect uh, the workforce, but at the same time, uh, continue to do whatever it is that the, that the client does that ultimately uh, keeps the doors open. Yeah, it sounds like that's almost the classic lawyer role, that good judgment, that strong counselor, that sort of person that you have on the quick dial from management when you need the answer to something that there might not be a clear answer to. Absolutely. And for me, it gets a, a little bit more um, uh, intense because I am the firm's employment counsel. And so while I have been advising external clients for you know, the last 22 months with respect to COVID, I've also, with uh, the firm's general counsel, Carrie Jackson, been advising the firm with respect to COVID. And we have 20 offices spread uh, all across the United States. And so our advice has become, and particularly within the firm, sometimes even more complicated uh, because our clients are lawyers <laughs> and because uh, you know, we are, again are you know twenty different offices, uh, you know, all the way from Southern California all the way to New York City. So there's all times there's always um, internal and external political issues that we also had to manage uh, as we were advising within the firm. Wow, you know, before you joined the firm, you you worked in house. How, how did that differ, and and how is how did that experience sort of help you in your current role? Great question. You know, I spent seven, uh, well, I'm, well, I'm close to, actually close to almost 10 years in, in corporate America. And uh, the, the one area that I think it really uh, helped me was I got to see the provision of legal services uh, from a client perspective. And at that time, I had not been in a law firm environment. And so uh, as a result of my corporate experience, I saw the best of the practice of law. And I saw the worst of the practice of law and everything sort of in between. And so when I uh, transitioned to Barnes and Thornburg in 2000, in November of 2001, I was able to sort of reflect back on my experience as an in-house lawyer and sort of mold myself, taking the best of what I had seen from some really phenomenal lawyers that from all across the, the country to make sure that, okay, these were going to be some of the thoughts that I was going to have as I was providing services. And then I also remembered some of what I considered to be the worst and made sure that I, as I provided services, didn't provide services in the way that I deemed when they were provided to me, a pretty poor way of providing services. And so I walked into Barnes and Thornburg, I think, with a really strong idea of what it meant to not only provide excellent legal services, but to do so with the client in mind and to do so in as cost-efficient a manner as possible. Yeah, you know, that's really good advice for new students as they're coming out to get that sort of client perspective. I, 
I have to say my own experience, I, I think when I was a young uh, law graduate, I sort of assumed that most people were the same, right? Our resumes looked similar. Right. And then once you start getting on the client side, you realize actually the quality and the luring can be dramatically different. And, and yes. um, that's got to have made you a more effective private practitioner to have that uh, internal view that you had. Absolutely. And I think it's also helped the associates that work with me because, you know, I've been here 20 plus years now. And for 20 plus years, I have said to associates, okay, there is no Barnes and Thornburg way of practicing law if you're going to work with me. What we do is we get a clear understanding from our clients of how they want services to be provided. And then we provide services in the way that they want and expect services to be provided. We don't force feed a Barnes and Thornburg view of how to provide services on clients. And uh, you know, I've had associates that were unable to make that transition and ultimately I made the decision that they could no longer provide services to my clients because they weren't willing to do so in a way that I know from being in-house was the best way to provide those services. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I always remember when I was a young lawyer, uh, somebody told me to treat the partners in the firm that I was working with like the clients too, that, you know, think of them as as, as the people that you're serving when you were a young associate. And I have to say that advice served me well because it, it um, you know, made, made you think about deadlines and other things in a slightly different way. Yeah. I agree with you 100%. I say the same thing because for most young associates or associates that are new to the practice, they don't have any external clients. Their work is not coming from, uh, you know, John Doe at X, you know, corporation coming to them with work. Their work is coming from partners that are giving them work. And so I have said to clients all the time, I'm excuse me, to associates all the time, you have one responsibility, and that's to make me look good. Mm -hmm. And I explain it by saying my responsibility to clients is to make clients look good. And so I'm not expecting of you anything that I don't expect of myself, because ultimately we want to make those that that give us the opportunity to provide services. We want to make them look good in the eyes of their internal clients. Yeah. Well, I remember when I was in practice, if I had a younger associate that made my life easier, they were, they were worth their weight in gold. And so someone you can count on trust. Yeah. You know, that raises another sort of broader question. You know, you've, you've, you've been practicing for a long time. You've done both in-house, you've done uh, private practice. Um, The legal profession has changed dramatically over the last, uh, you know, uh, 30 plus years. Um, um, what are the changes that stand out most to you in, in, I don't know, the last decade or two in your practice? Sure. Uh, so I think there's two that I wanted to make sure that we talked about. The first that I think is a really good thing, and that's been an emphasis from clients on diversity, diversity equity, and inclusion. And so what I've really seen uh, in the last 10 years is, is clients starting to walk the walk and talk the talk as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion and being more demanding of law firms to ensure uh, that the lawyers that provide services to the client represent the diversity that that the client has either in its workforce or in its client base. And I think that is a really good thing because that has has forced law firms like Barnes & Thornburg to have to answer to clients and answer in an objective way that allows clients to really determine whether or not you're serious about diversity, equity, and inclusion because for the most part, what you're seeing a lot of clients do is not only provide us demographic information about those doing the work, but provide us blurbs with respect to the type of work they're doing. And so clients are now making sure that diverse uh, 
lawyers are absolutely involved in one doing work and doing quality work and putting uh, law firms on notice. Look, if you're not willing to meet these diversity, equity and inclusion objectives, then perhaps we need to look at other options. So I think that that is probably the most, for, for me as a lawyer of color, the most significant thing that I've seen in the last 10 years, because I can think of years and years before that where uh, uh, clients talked about it, but they really didn't uh, put enforcement processes in place to ensure that law firms uh, met those, that obligation. That makes sense. We, you know, we do a fair amount of work with the Leadership Council on Legal Diversity. And when I was in California, uh-huh. and they really took a leadership role in pushing that, I think, in the early days. And, and I, know the, I know the corporations that signed on to LCLD, they, yes. they required a certain amount in order to, um, a certain amount of work uh, uh, to meet their diversity, equity, and inclusion goals, or else you just weren't going to, you weren't going to have those clients. And that made a massive, seemed to make a massive difference. Absolutely. Uh, so that's the first one. And then the second one sort of is just the speed in which clients expect answers, sometimes to very difficult questions. And I think that's sort of a, a result of, you know, uh, where we all have, you know, our, our cell phones, our iPads, and, you know, we can Google and get answers and whatnot. And so clients ex- expect a much quicker turnaround with respect to an answer to a question that they pose, sometimes irrespective of the difficulty of the question, simply because they're just used to getting almost immediate responses. And so what that has required of me and uh, others uh, that, that I work with here at the firm is to make sure we have a clear understanding up front of the client's you know, deadline and whether or not it's a real deadline or, or, or what other factors might be out there. Because, you know, for me, it's not about simply meeting the client's expectations, it's exceeding. And so if they're expecting things on a really short turnaround, sometimes it's really important to know that because, again, the goal is to exceed the expectation, even if it is a short turnaround. I've never taken the position that when a client has said to me, can you get something to me by tomorrow? Uh, that No, that's, too, that, that's asking us to do too much too soon. So, no, we can't do that. Uh, because if that's the answer, they're going to find somebody else that can provide the services in the way that they want services provided. That makes a lot of sense. I, I always joked when I started in academia that one of the liberating parts of, of being a faculty member is that if you respond to students within the day, they're very happy. And well, <laughs> when I was in practice, the client wanted the answer a couple of hours before they sent the email. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, well, that makes a lot of sense. You know, the, you know, another thing we talk about students about is how it becomes really important these days. And well, I guess has always been uh, for lawyers, not just to have strong relationships with their clients, but also with the community. And, and you're deeply involved in your community. You, you volunteered for the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence, the Indiana Coalition and Sexual Assault, the Julian Center. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your involvement there and, 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 yeah, and yeah. how you got involved? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, one of the, there's a, a lot of great things about Barnes and Thornburg and being at Barnes and Thornburg. One of the things that I like, of uh, uh, many things that I like, is the emphasis on pro bono uh, representations. And so um, we are strongly encouraged, both as partners and as associates, to, 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 uh, to find pro bono activities to do within the community. And so having been, you know, here for now 20 years, I have sort of really hopped around in different areas. I found something of interest in the community and said, oh, 
you know, I want to help uh, this particular organization. And so I, uh, as it relates to sort of the domestic violence sort of issues, that has just always been an issue for me uh, that, you know, growing up, I can remember domestic issues within my own family. And I remember sort of at the time thinking, you know, that there weren't any, a lot of resources to help people uh, that were in really tough domestic situations. And so it was always something, quite frankly, in the back of my mind that I wanted to do. And I think it was the Coalition to End Sexual Violence may have been my first sort of venture into this arena. And I was representing uh, pro bono, excuse me, representing clients who needed to get temporary restraining orders, whether it was against a partner or a husband, and did not have the legal, have the funds to hire their own counsel. And so we, uh, and I partnered with an associate in my department who had that same interest. And it just, uh, uh, words can't really sort of explain the good feeling uh, uh, associated with helping someone uh, who uh, believes that there are no real resources out there and no real remedies out there to help them get a remedy uh, that, that helped in a very difficult situation. And to get a pretty quick feedback with respect to, you know, because you show up, you make the argument to the court uh, about the need for the restraining order and the court either grants it or denies it. And there's nothing better than looking at someone's face when the court has granted that motion and they walk out feeling more protected than they did when they walked in the door. And so that's an area that is going to always be uh, near and, and dear to my heart. And uh, God willing, I'll have the opportunity uh, to continue uh, as the need arises uh, to be a part of, of those kinds of efforts. One of the nice things about being in that space is there's so many lawyers that are interested in working in that space. You know, you don't get a regular calls. There's a, a whole panel of lawyers that are interested in doing that. And so while I love doing it, I wish I could do it more, but I'm glad that I don't get to do it more because that simply means that there are more lawyers like me trying to provide those types of pro bono services. Yeah, you know, here at the law school, we have the protective order project where students yes. students do somewhat similar work. And, yep. and um, you know, my pitch to students is whether you're planning a career in public interest or whether you're planning to be, you know, an M&A transactional attorney on Wall Street, doing that sort of community work is a great way to build your lawyer skills and, or legal skills. And and, um, and as you say, there's, there's something... Um, there's something that's meaningful about knowing immediately whether you've made a difference in somebody's lives. And, and that's different than some of these other practices where it can take years before you find out Absolutely. whether you made a difference for the, your clients. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks for all you, you, you do there. I, I, that's, as you say, that's a really important area here in Indiana and it's good to have great lawyers like yourself working on it. Thank you. <laughs> you know, maybe we could, you know, one of the things I like to do in this podcast is do a little bit of a walk down memory lane and, and, sure. And, you know, uh, you know, it was quite some time ago, we were talking earlier before the show about how the library uh, still hadn't been really built before uh, when you were there in the 80s, before the big renovation in 86, 87. And, but, but maybe you can tell us what, what stands out in, in your mind about the law school and, and what brought you to Bloomington in the first place? Well, you know, what brought me to uh, the law school, because uh, uh, I did my undergrad at Indiana University also, and I had decided uh, by the time I got to my junior year that I wanted to go somewhere different for law school. And so I did not uh, uh, really express an interest in 
Indiana University Bloomington Law School, which is what it was called at, at, at that time. And I happened to be uh, at the union. I actually had a billiards class. And I remember my mother saying, you're actually uh, taking a college class in playing pool? And I said, yes. And so uh, one day after my class, I was just in there shooting pool and I met uh, Frank Montley. Uh, and he was there playing pool. And we started talking in, uh, you know, at some point during the conversation, I told him that I was going to go to law school, that I wasn't really interested in spending another uh, three years in Bloomington, despite the fact that I enjoyed my time in Bloomington. And I remember him distinctly saying, well, that's unacceptable. <laughs> and him spending uh, you, you know, the next, you know, obviously in those days, we didn't have email or cell phones or anything like that. But the number of times that he reached out to me to talk about the law school or to invite me over to talk about the law school, uh, it re he really impressed upon me that this was somebody that was truly uh, invested in making sure that I was aware of the, the, what he believed and what I now know to be true the significant benefits of attending the law school in Bloomington, despite the fact that I had done four years of undergraduate work there. And so uh, Frank was absolutely positively the driving force in opening my eyes to the law school. And quite frankly, the, uh, the motivating factor for me uh, when I had to make the, dip, the decision whether or not I was going to go out of state or stay in state. And so uh, boy, looking back on that decision, you know, 40 plus years ago, uh, that, that absolutely positively was one of the best and most critical decisions that impacted my life. Uh, and that is to, to, to make the decision to, to stay in Bloomington for that, another three years to attend the law school. Well, Frank is legendary, not only with his recruiting uh, abilities, but also just how many students he brought to the law school. He, yes. It's just amazing, actually. Uh, all paths lead to Frank in some ways. And, <laughs> so true. Well, and I would have thought uh, at that time, he must have just started. I, I, I'm thinking he started in, the, in 77 or late 70s when he came to the law school himself. He really did. Because we. I think we met, and he and I figured this out at one point in time. I think we met in 1978. And he had only been at the law school. He had been at the law school less than two years. And so, yeah, I, that was very early in his career. And, you know, he and, he and I have joked about, you know, I, 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 we almost started together. While I was there, he left and then he came back. And then he's like, so, so I've seen uh, many uh, iterations of, of, of Frank and his involvement in the law school. But the number of people uh, uh, from not just my era, but from, you know, you know, the subsequent decades that uh, were impacted by him is, is, is truly a testament to his commitment uh, to the law school and, and to the Indiana University community at large. Oh, absolutely. Although I have to say the other part of that story that resonates with me, uh, you know, I've seen Frank out on the golf course. I, he used, he and I used to play a little bit of chess over lunch. I could uh -huh. see him recruiting in the billiards uh, room. <laughs> and, you know, I could, I could see him. I bet he was pretty. I bet he was a good shot, actually. No, he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, we, we, st we haven't played played in a, in a while, but you know, we literally have have played on and off since that first day. So you know, we're forty plus years into playing at time. What a great, uh, what a great history. Uh, yeah, Frank is yeah. Uh, Frank is somebody I admire and has done did great things for the law school for such a long yeah. time. If we're talking about close friends, you know, one of your close friends was Raphael M. Provo, and uh -huh. unfortunately passed away in 2008 uh, at a young age. Um, 
Um, but your photo now hangs next to him on our wall, honoring our inductees to the Academy of Law Alumni Fellows. And the barrister's ball is named in his honor. In fact, I, I can look out my window and I can see his, his picture on the banner that now yes. stands outside uh, Indiana Avenue, right outside the law school as sort of honoring his legacy. Can you talk a little about, about Raphael and, and his legacy and, and your friendship? Absolutely. So Rayfield and I met, we were both undergraduate students at uh, Indiana University. We were both uh, resident assistants and I, I was a year ahead of him. Uh, yeah, I was, a, I was a year ahead of him and we were both RAs in Reed Center. And so I sort of, uh, he sort of saw me going through the law school application uh, process. And I think that uh, part of his decision to uh, stay in Bloomington for law school was was in part because I was there, but like me, he was also a Frank Montley recruit. And so we uh, actually lived together. And after um, uh, undergraduate, when we both were law students, we lived together for two years while we were in law school. And so we sort of, again, I was a year ahead of him, but we sort of went through the the, the uh, trials and tribulations of being law students together. And even though I graduated a year ahead of him, those, uh, the, the two years that we lived together in, in such trying you know, times, I sort of forged a bond uh, that at that time, uh, I had no idea would remain in place for as long as it did. And so even though after Rayfield graduated, he decided to, to move to Florida. And I remember saying to him, why in the world are you moving to Florida? He's like, the weather, duh, you know? And so, and so uh, we uh, maintained a very strong relationship, uh, even though I was practicing law in Indiana and he was practicing law in Florida. And then even when he moved to New York uh, to become a lawyer for the NFL. Uh, and so uh, over time, you know, our relationship, quite frankly, got closer because we both uh, we're experiencing at times the challenges of being black men practicing law in an environment where we didn't see anybody that looked like us. And so we would regularly have calls where we could just sort of vent to each other about our uh, lives and our experiences. And so uh, that, again, was uh, really important, I think, to, to both of us. One thing I want to share about Rayfield was that his commitment and love for Indiana University and the law school was, was so phenomenal. And I can remember us, because part of, of, of what I have done is absolutely tied to my relationship with him. I can remember uh, when you know I had four kids, they were all sort of a young age and, and Rayfield and Roberta had not had any children at the time. And we were talking about ways to give back because at the time I, you know, I, I felt some, somewhat guilty because I thought, oh, man, I really can't give financially back to the university the way I want to because I've got, you know, kids and we've got great plans for them. And he said to me, it's not just about money, Tony. It can be about your time. And he said, your time can be more valuable than any amount of money you give because, you uh, uh, and I remember what we used to call each other. We were unicorns. And he said, we're, you know, we're unicorns. And for us to go back into the university environment and give back to the students and give back to the to the undergraduates and give back to the law school, that can be really invaluable. And so he is the first person that really opened my eyes to 
giving back to the universe by, uh, by giving of myself. And one of the last conversations that I had with Rayfield uh, before he passed away, uh, he shared with me, uh, I just thanked him for you know, all that he had done for me, all that he had done for the law school. And he said to me, he said, yeah, but, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to, I, I didn't get accomplished what I wanted to get accomplished because I ran out of time. And I said to him that I'll finish the job for you. I will dedicate the time necessary to get the job done. And so all of what I do, quite frankly, is because he opened my eyes to this being an avenue to give back to the university. And, and, and I can say uh, with certainty uh, that I have I exceeded his expectations uh, because there's, I don't know that there's ever been a time that someone has asked me to do something and I've said no. I've always tried to find a way to say yes because I understand the importance to you and the students and the community down there of, of, of graduates coming back and giving of themselves to, you know, to the law school. Raphael was an amazing graduate, as you say, and, and yeah. uh, you know, his mark still is felt with the law school. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm proud that the Barrister's Ball is named in his honor. I think it's, yeah. it's, it's a nice way to sort of acknowledge his contributions. But as you say, you've done a lot. I, I, I'm sort of wondering how the prior deans got you to serve on so many boards <laughs> so many times. I, uh, <laughs> Because I, you know, we—I think I mentioned this at the start of the the podcast, right? You you served as the past president of the Balsa yeah. Alumni mm -hmm. Advisory Board, the Board of Visitors, the twice on the alumni board. Yeah, um, we we've kept you busy, and and uh, as you say, I think uh, whatever Raphael was expecting, you've you've doubled down on that. Uh, uh -huh. Is there some part of that sort of service that you remember most, or what stands out most for you in those experiences as being sort of particularly rewarding or something you enjoyed as you were, as you were connecting back with your alma mater? Oh, absolutely. The thing, you know, sort of irrespective of what board I was on, I always looked for an opportunity to connect with law students. When, when we were down for, you know, board of visitors meeting, alumni board meetings, I always wanted to make sure that I set aside time to meet with students and just to be able to uh, meet with students sort of, sort of, you know, within the parameters of being a part of the board, one allowed me to connect with students. And then when I talk to students to talk about the importance of giving back to, to the law school. So I don't want, you know, I hope that, you know, the Rachel's legacy that, that you know, I, that obviously I carried on. My goal has always been, Dean, that others, uh, as a result of meeting me, will at some point get the same fire to come back and whether it's because of a board appointment or coming down to, to, to be a guest lecturer, just understand the importance of coming back and making yourselves available to students. Yeah, that's music to my ears. But, you know, the, <laughs> the, you know, the reality is, you know, there's a couple of threads there. You know, we have fabulous alumni. And, and I think part of it is what you were talking about earlier, that people had they had special uh, special experiences here. And yeah. and um, some like you, you know, did both their undergraduate and their law wow. school degree, but even those who just spent the three years here for getting their JD or um, there's a little bit of nostalgia and the friendships they made during that time stuck with them in many ways, yeah. um, maybe more so after they graduated, just like you and Raphael. And we have some alums who come back every year. Um, now I'm convinced they, they're coming back more for the, uh, the beer at Nick's, but they, they, <laughs> Than the law school, but but they stop by they stop by uh -huh. you know, the same time every year and and um, but I think you're you know uh, we're, we're we're really fortunate about how many alum feel that the connection with the students is important and I think that sort of distinguishes us from many other schools which is really nice I 
Yeah. And, you know, it's really interesting because, uh, you know, in the first few years after, I didn't really feel it. You know, you're just glad to have, have survived the experience. But the reality for me has been uh, as time has passed and you sort of get to a stage in your career where you can do a little bit of reflection. I really uh, value uh, the time spent in the law school more so absolutely now than I did while I was in the midst of it. And so it seems just the, the, the more the time passes, the more you sort of think, go, think back and really appreciate just the beauty of the three additional years of being down there and the friendships that, that, that I made and some of which and a lot of which, quite frankly, 40 plus years later are still in place. Yeah, that's really nice. I think people, when you're, I think when you're just starting law school or college, you you view the world as massive. And then once you get in practice, you realize it's actually a pretty small community. And yeah. so mm-hmm. some of the friendships you make in law school end up being your future colleagues and uh, yes, yeah, it's or clients. <laughs> yeah. And, I, I, and that's one of, you know, there's, you know, I, uh, students saddle me regularly. And one of the things I talk about is the importance of networking within your class. Understand, recognizing obviously that you know you're in law school and, and why you're there, but it really is important to sort of network and get to know people because those relationships can absolutely uh, bear fruit in the future. I am at Barnes and Thornburg in large part because of Ken Yerkes, and Ken Yerkes and I were first year uh, uh, classmates. We were in the same section, and on Fridays we didn't have class, so we would always go to the hyper and play basketball. And so there were a group of law students that played basketball on Friday, every Friday. And Ken and I uh, established a friendship in law school that has, uh, uh, you know, the passage of time. We are still friends and he is the department chair here. And he is the person that reached out to me 20 some you know, years ago to talk about coming to Barnes and Thornburg. And again, that's a relationship that was started and grew uh, through the law school. That's really, that's great advice for law students. You know, are, is there other things that, you know, if you, if you're able to, if you were to think back, uh, you know, that wish things that you wish you had known as you were getting started, is there tidbits of advice for law students or new lawyers that you would, you, you'd want to give now? Yeah. And, and, and this goes back to, you know, one of the things that, you know, Rachel and I used to, 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 to really joke about how, uh, how, and this, how, how effective of a networker he was right out of law school. And so one of the things, you know, I had a job and I was so focused on my job, I really didn't sort of think, okay, I need to be building a personal and professional network right from the beginning. Rayfield comes out of law school the, the, the next year, right after me. And the first job he gets, he's working for Janet Reno, who ultimately became, and I can't remember if it was under the Clinton administration, you know, <laughs> very high up in the, and, and I remember thinking, man, How'd you meet Janet Reno? And ultimately, and at one point he brought her, she actually spoke at a law school graduation because of him. And he just talked about, he understood uh, uh, from, the, from a, a very young age, the importance of friendships and how friendships slash, whether they were personal or professional, how those things could ultimately benefit not only him, but give him the opportunity to benefit others. And so, I remember the first couple of years as he got out and he would he would talk to me about when he met someone. And this is the days when we exchanged business cards. Right. And he would talk about he would get the business card. He'd ask them a couple of questions and he'd write all the stuff on the back of the business card. Then he filed the business card away. And then at some point he'd reach out to the person and 
you know, remember because he had written personal stuff about him, maybe wife's name, number of kids and whatnot, and how he was able to establish these really great relationships. And at some point I bought into his theory and, and recognized that I needed to be more aggressive in working on my personal and professional network. And everything that I am today is in, in part because of the understanding very early, not as early as I would have liked, because this I should have been doing, quite frankly, as a law student, working on building a personal and professional network. So one of the things I have always shared with law students is the, is the need uh, to, to begin right from your first semester in the law school to work on your personal and professional uh, network. And so that's always been my sort of thing that I wish I could have done a better job of, or maybe started earlier, I should say. And it's the one thing that I try to share with students, how important it is. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I, I, I think, you know, not only building your network, but it's also, it sort of underscores why it's so important to be a nice person when you're in law school. Yes. Because those connections, yes. those was go along to your reputation is being built from day one. Yeah. I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, if you were to do it all, you've had an amazing career, right? And, and uh, amazing career in private practice, a great career, uh, giving back to the community. Um, as you say, you've been involved in law school for a long time. If you were to do it all again, uh, would you do anything different? Uh, Absolutely not. Yeah. You know, uh, it would, it, uh, uh, it was a, uh, the, the journey has been a, a journey that is just, uh, you know, that when I look back, uh, it's, I'm just overwhelmed at how blessed I've been to have the career that I've had. Because if you had, some, if someone had said to me uh, in, in the fall of 1980, uh, when I walked into the law school for the first time, that as a result of my three years in that law school, I would have had the practice that I would have had, I would have never believed it. Uh, and so it, it, I would absolutely, and that includes the bumps in the road. Uh, I would absolutely uh, not uh, change anything about the experience and the opportunities that, that came from that experience. Well, Tony, it's been great talking to you this morning. Thanks for making the time and thanks for joining me on uh, One Mark Called Call. Uh, really proud that you're one of our alums. And uh, again, let me just say thank you for all you've done all the, all, over all the years. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And I appreciate the opportunity to be a part of the podcast. And I'll, I've listened to a couple and I'll look forward to uh, listening to them as you continue to produce them going forward. Well, thanks, Tony. Great to see you this morning. All right. Have a good rest of your day. And thanks to our listeners for joining us, too. Don't forget to follow us on social media at both at Austin Parish and at IU Mauer Law on Twitter and Facebook. And we hope you make plans to come back to Bloomington soon. Each year, over a thousand alumni come back to campus, judging moot court or mock trial, serving as mentors, or helping our students in other ways. We hope you will too. And when you do, please reach out. Until the next time, this is One More Cold Call, an IU Mauer School of Law alumni podcast.